This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Everybody, this is Lane Kabaoka from the Simple Passive Casual Podcast. Today, I've got Jay Papasan on the line. Overwhelmed by the amount of stuff is on Simple Passive Cashflow? Don't know where the heck to start? Go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start to sign up or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767 for the curated course to get you up to speed on the past two years of content. Again, join the free web course, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Go to simplepassivecashflow backslash start or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767. How's it going, Jay? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, theme of today is the one thing because we've got the author on board. Make sure you guys go and uh, leave an iTunes review or uh, subscribe to the new YouTube channel. We're going to have a lot more video like this. Uh, people like video for some reason. <laughs> and um, sign up for that Hui Deal Pipeline Club to get access to the deals I get sent. And uh, for those of you who don't know Jay Papasan, you've probably been living under a rock lately. Because everybody's been clamoring about this book for the last year or two years. So Jay Papasan is the best-selling author and vice president and executive editor at Killer Williams Realty, real estate mogul that it is these days. He has also written Millionaire Real Estate Agent, Millionaire Real Estate Investor, which I always recommend one of my top four books for every investor to read. Oh, cool. I, I personally, it's an older book. You know, we wrote it in 2004 and I think it came out in 2005. But the, a lot of people don't know this. Gary's father was nearing the end of his life and he has a younger son and he was reflecting on passing knowledge past generations. And so those opening 100 or so pages where it's really not just about investing, it's about money and how you think about it. That was kind of a letter about money to his son is the way I would interpret it. So right. it was a lot of, you know, people don't expect that. I usually just tell people, if you don't understand money, that's a great place to start and get some really good high-level principles from a guy who's a self-made billionaire. So it's not a bad place to start for sure. Right. Yeah, I'm one of those guys. I tell most people I tell, don't read books, right? Just go out and analyze a lot of properties and put it on a spreadsheet and see what the numbers are because things change. But it's millionaire real estate investor. And you guys have this right, great, like, graphic in there about different the classes of properties and then the pain in the butt factor on the other side and you know try and find that sweet spot i mean i think that's just genius cool genius back and we interviewed a lot of investors like you to kind of find what we thought was a common truth that was kind of what we were going for so it's some of gary and a whole lot of the 120 people we interviewed all right so if you guys want to um that book list that of four books including that book go to simple passive cash flow backslash books but we're here to talk about Jay and the one thing today. So Jay, uh, one of the things I picked up from this book is, and I think it's a good starting point, is this domino theory. Why don't we start there? Sure. I, I think uh, when we suggested the title, The One Thing, and we went to the Book Expo in New York, all the New York booksellers were like, are you kidding me? It's never just one thing. Like they almost ridicule, right? Right. And it's a truth because every, nobody's got one thing on their plate. And so we were looking for a metaphor for this idea that you have a lot of stuff to do. And, you know, you've lined up dominoes as a kid, right? So if you line them up just right and you knock over one, 
hopefully all of them fall down. And so the idea is when we align our priorities correctly and do the right thing first, we can often get a multiple, right, of what we're doing. And we played with that. Um, you can tell we had a little fun. We nerded out on it. Um, the world record, I believe, is about 4.5 million dominoes. So the scale of what you can accomplish, you know, at least in the world of dominoes, is huge. And then we found um, some research from 1983. I mean, like I said, we were nerding out by a guy named Lauren Whitehead that a domino could knock over one that was 50% larger. And if you played that out, you built those dominoes. He did 10. And that two-inch domino by the 10th one knocked over one that was six foot four, like as big as a doorway, basically. And it's this idea of momentum. And uh, you probably know the page in the book where we graphed it out, right? And Empire I think State it's like Building, a, right? Like, yeah, like the 18th, it would knock over the Tower of Pisa. By the 23rd, the Eiffel Tower, which is taller than the Empire State Building, by the way. And, you know, just 54 or so dominoes into it, you could knock over a domino that would reach all the way from the earth to the moon. And my takeaway, when you graph that out, if you can picture it, it's like a hockey stick on its side. You know, I was like, I told Gary, I mean, anything that compounds makes that shape. Compound interest, the way investments grow over time, right? That is something when you do the right things over time, it doesn't just do a lot of stuff. It can really magnify. Right, right. Yeah, I think a lot of investors, they see it in terms of, um, you know, most people get 8% in stock market. Yeah. Um, us investors, you know, we're, we're probably able to um, turn our money at 20% plus or minus 5 or 10% a year. Um, I'll concur with that. For single family residential, yeah. Um, the way the money works, um, if you're playing with the tax benefits, which is a, a moving target, you can boost it a little bit when you think about your total cash return. But yeah, I kind of count on 18 to 25% for single family when I look at the total return on that. And if you're looking at big blocks of investing, I kind of end up falling like I'll buy it at an eight cap, but you know, you hope to turn it into a 10 or 11 cap before you're right, done. Right. That's for the bigger stuff. Right. So like what I tell a lot of investors is, you know, that's why I call this simple passive cash flow is it's pretty simple. After some, some point of doing this a couple of times, you can get the hang of it. And, and really, it's us that's the, uh, the person in the way. Well, I'll say this. The, one of the things that we tried to emphasize in The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, we also did a, a book with some friends called Hold, which is really about holding you know, uh, properties over time. The first few times you do it, it's really good to be a little cautious, right? It's great to work with someone like you who's seasoned, right? Who can see things that you don't. But because of the nature of the investment, sometimes when people make their, a mistake on the first or one or two, they don't ever play again. And our goal was always, I'd rather them start a little slowly but not get knocked out of the game. We didn't make a real mistake until we had about eight properties. Right. And by then, we were able to absorb the mistake. We knew enough to correct the mistake and were to live with it. But if that had been our first property, you know, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, today I do multifamily and different kinds of syndications, but, and then people, you know, they always Google that syndication term and they, they, they think, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do multifamily. But I always tell people to go small first, then take that domino and go bigger, much quicker. Yep. And syndications, you're investing other people's money, right? So um, I, I had a friend that was doing that. He was, um, because he didn't have a lot of cash, he was getting his friends, family. They call that in the business, friends, family, and fools, by the way, right? And collecting that money and buying quads and duplexes with it. And because he had a CPA's training, he was 
doing all the books. And so he was able to benefit and invest faster. But I remember sitting down with him and I said, buddy, I know you. If this investment turns sour, are you really going to let them lose money with you? And he's like, he looked at me and he's like, no. And I was like, all right, then why are you doing that? Because now you think you're only risking this much money, but because I know you, you would go and do whatever you had to do to pay everybody back. So I do think that is something like that's, that's not level one investing. I definitely would say for many reasons, and also being good to your investors, maybe make that level three or four. Right, right. I recently came back from kicking the dirt in the high elevations in Panama. The site of the investment I am proudest of in my personal holdings, which is Turnkey Coffee Farmland Parcels. Coffee, cash flow, and a legacy investment with turnkey management. Go to Simple Passive Cash Flow backslash coffee to get a parcel in your mind before the whole mountain is gone. So we'll kind of transition out of the uh, the real estate land because I think a lot of the investors that are listening, they're more on the passive side. They, okay. They, either, you know, they, they need to get their first rental. That's, you know, some people are like that and, you know, they're kind of set. They're kind of focused. But for a lot of other of us, you know, we're working a full-time job, also making calls during lunch or stuff on the weekend or, in, you know, two hours on every evening is what I kind of preach. And you've got a lot of stuff, right? A lot of yeah. these potential dominoes to fall your book really helped me realize that you know i've got all these tasks to do and to try and identify that one next thing that's going to make everything easier maybe can you tell me about that little that little um trick and habit how does sure. how does like a really busy professional with a family implement this in their life the principles of the one thing is really kind of like the 80-20 principle on steroids. And 80-20 just says the minority of what you do gives you the minor- majority of what you want. And a lot of times, 20% gives you 80%. And that's kind of scary how often that shows up. And so a strategic person then asks, of all the things that I have to do, what are the handful that are truly impactful? And in the one thing, we want to take that further. If I only got one thing done today or this week, what would that one thing be that would be most impactful? And that becomes your number one. And then you say, well, if I could do two, what would the second thing be, right? And what's funny is like Gary's always thought this way. And so if you read any of our books, you know, we have like this central models that we build around. And in our observation and in Gary's experience, like the three core things that if you get them right, make your investing go crazy were criteria terms and network. So if you know what your criteria for an investment are and you won't invest unless you have a match, then your only job becomes to go find things that match that criteria. And your terms don't matter that much until you find a property, right? So people will mess a long time and figure out all of this other stuff. It's like, well, until you have an investment property, why are you spending so much time there? So when we were first investing, we figured out our criteria based on what we could afford and what we wanted to have happen. And then I spent all of my time looking for great investments. And as a busy professional, um, I live in Austin, Texas. I live in 78704, which is the center of town. And I remember all the seasoned investors were like, you'll never find investments there. And I had made one investment. It was 30 minutes away. And I really didn't enjoy that process because I was having to drive out there to show it. And, you know, when something went wrong, I would lose my entire lunch break. And I just told my wife, it's like, we're doing this. Um, we're operating at our own speed. How can we find more deals close to home? 
And so like one of like simple strategies, this is aligning your dominoes. I still have to drive to work every day and I have to drive home from work every day. Well, I started driving a different way every day, sometimes going way out of my way. But what I was doing was I was looking for piles of newspapers on the lawn, right? Abandoned homes. I was looking for things where the grass was high. I was looking for properties that might be off market and available. And guess what? We started finding deals. And you mentioned this earlier. In the very beginning, I'd pull up to the curb. I'd get the address. I'd go and get our MLS data. And I would run the numbers. And I'd say, this is what I think would work. And we ran the numbers probably on 100 properties before we made our first offer. But by the time we did, like I was so, you could do the math so fast because you've done it the long ways so many times. You can pull up to the curb and you're one of those guys who can just kind of tick it off in your head. You're like, okay, this is probably going to rent for about 1500 aside. I bet we can get it for 235. Um, it's going to need about 15,000 and make ready work. Like you just start doing the math and you're, you're definitely going to do the math long form, but you can make assessments really fast. If you do the hard work of trolling through the properties for things that might be deals and doing the math. And so in the very beginning, you're just looking for criteria, 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 criteria. Um, so that was how, like, I didn't have the one thing then, but we were trying to live it because that's how Gary makes all of us live. That was how we interpreted it at the very beginning. If right. we have the right deal flow, if you have a good deal, the money will show up is what I've found. You don't even have to have money to invest in yourself. You can find a co-investor. Right. A couple of things that just in that story that I kind of highlight is first of all, you're in motion. You're actually driving and doing this. You're, you weren't just sitting there waiting for some, something else to take your monkey brain attention away. You know, right. you're doing it. And then the second thing is this idea of you know, co-pairing two tasks. Like for example, you want to read books and you want to work out, well, go read books on the treadmill. Right. Or um, go listen to audiobooks when you're folding laundry. You know, be strategic about it. You set yourself up. It's hard enough, right? I mean, there's distractions all the time. You know, in the beginning, um, it's funny. I tell this story a lot because we end up now working with a lot of young investors. I'm sure you do too, because you've now people go, wow, your experience, Lane, how did you do it? When we first were writing The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, I remember four or five of us, um, well, it's probably like 30 of us that worked here, said, let's be investors too. And we started a real estate investment club at work. <laughs> and it was funny is I didn't know that many people wanted to invest right here. You know, these are technologists, whatever. And we started meeting at lunch every couple of weeks and different people would say, all right, I'm going to read rich dad, poor dad, and I'm going to teach it to you. Right. So we didn't all have to read the book and we collaborated. The truth is out of that 30 or so people, only about four of us actually invested. You know why that is. A lot of people think they will, but they actually won't. But four of us took action and we became kind of a little mastermind. So even though we had really big jobs, right? We have all of the other responsibilities. We're all helping each other. Hey, I, don't, I need a handyman. Who do you know? And we built our little network and supported each other. So you can align those tasks, right? We made work into an investor seminar every single day. Because people talk at the coffee pot every day, don't they? But they're talking about, you know, football or whatever. We were just talking about cap rates and how much money you had to put down on a property. Right. And that's the peer group right there, right? Like I, I know everybody says the five people that you hang out with most. Are Jim Rohn. Right. I'll take it a step further and I'll say, you know, the five people that you hang out could be, are likely to be your downfall. 
I mean, yes. take, take serious look at who you're hanging out with. Who's that person? Who's that negative person? Who's that person who's posting something weird on Facebook? Just go and mute that person. You know, it's, maybe it's a, a addition by subtraction kind of a thing. Well, you know, we talked about earlier the dominoes and how if you take anything that grows exponentially, it'll look like a hockey stick over time, right? Well, that's if you have really great investor habits, your wealth will grow like that over time. The opposite is also true. You know, I know a lot of people who'll say, I'm just going to spend a little bit more money than I'm going to earn. I'm just going to spend a little bit more money I earn. Okay, I'm going to carry a little bit of a balance on my credit card. And it's very small dominoes in the beginning. And then it starts to add up. And then they get sick and have a medical bill, right? Or their hot water heater. And then they get to the curve of that hockey stick and it goes the wrong direction. So I think anything, right, that has the power to propel you forward, if you have the wrong things in place, has the equal and opposite power to drive you down. So I love what you just said about who you hang out with. It's funny, we would all tell our kids, it matters who you hang out with, kid, but we don't take that advice ourselves. Because they're for friend, man. That's a friend. <laughs> but, all right, well, tell me this, Lane. This is like, now I'm getting to get like real with you. I have friends that we were on this journey, right? My soccer buddies, you know, my fishing and hunting buddies. I'm in Texas. And they're your beer buddies. And some of them went on this journey, not very many. Most of them did not. I still am friends with some of those guys. And I love them like an old friend. I've known them for 20 years. I just don't spend as much time with them. So it doesn't mean you have to abandon people. I think it does mean that you'll start choosing your time more carefully about where you invest a lot of it. Has that been your experience? Yeah, just limiting, you know, limiting associations, you know, it's like, you know, this person is not quite into uh, or really likes their day job, which kind of annoys me a little bit. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool. You know, that was nice. Nice dinner. See you later. You know, you know, it's nice when you get together, but there's other people that just resonate with you. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's normal. And so you'll gravitate and spend more time with them. I think a lot of people hear that statement and they're afraid that they have to call their, their brother-in-law and their best friend of 20 years and say, hey, dude, I'm not hanging out with you anymore. It's not really like that, but you will choose to invest your time differently. One of the first things I looked into getting away from Wall Street were the many crowdfunding sites out there, but I just was not into paying another middleman to give me a false sense of security and then take a chunk of the profits from the operator and me, the investor. Check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash len or text the word money to 314-665-1767. These lending opportunities are exclusive to Simple Passive Cashflow listeners to power operators I trust and will put my brand on the line with. Again, for more information, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash lend or text money to 314-665-1767. So something I've been working on lately is, you know, like anybody else, I've got these to-do lists and I might be a little more sophisticated. I read David Allen's Getting Things Done. So I got my little labels. Huh. But my problem these days is, you know, getting that frog done. You know, you, you go through and you identify your big main things and getting that one or two things done, maybe just because it's like edit a podcast. Like, you know, maybe I probably shouldn't be doing that. But, you know, just one of those things where I'm like, eh, I'll do that at the end after I finish everything. And never, I never finish anything, so it never gets done. What are your, you have this technique for identifying the big ideas, the big dominoes. Let me walk us through that. 
Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? The Pareto's principle, right? It's the principle of you start with the things that are most effective first. And uh, we have a question in the book called the focusing question. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. And in our experience, and we've been doing this for a little over five years and taught this to thousands, if not tens of thousands of people at this point, um, most people actually know the answer, right? And they just procrastinate. And so how do we get around that? I think that half the battle is clearly identifying that it is a priority. Because there's stuff that are, is on our to-do list that we actually do have to do that's not important. And it's, okay, you know, I, I'm going to say, yeah, put that to the end of the day, but you still have to get it done. What you want to do is do that stuff that's a higher priority that gives you more impact. Because guess what? When you do that consistently over time, you, know, you just said, why am I doing that? That was my thought too. You edit your own podcast. If you're really doing your one thing for investing well, unless it's something that gives you pleasure and you want to be a, a podcast editor as a hobby, it might be a better dollar productive use of your time to assign someone else that task who lives and breathes editing podcasts, right? So that you can go find another deal. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm saying that hypothetically. I'm not saying that's true for you, Lane. But that's kind of the math you do. So um, I'm going to flash this on your screen, right? Um, we have a process we talk about in the book called the 411. And I've been doing this for, it'll be 18 years this year. And you have your annual goals, what you want to achieve at the top. I have them for my work life and my personal life. And then each month at the beginning of the month, I ask, what do I need to achieve? What are the big rocks, the priorities, the 20% I have to achieve towards those annual goals this month? And then I write those down. And then each week I look down and I say, based on my goals for the year, and then based on my goals for my month that were based on those goals, what do I have to achieve this week to be on track for my month and my year, right? You're working backwards. Mm -hmm. And I have a, you can see there's a whole bunch of stuff written up here. You go down here, I've got handwriting. There's only like four things on my week professionally. It's a really short list because these are the only the big rocks. And I carry this around in my journal every single day. And when I start my day, I look at this list and I look at my calendar and I just say, did I block the time or not? And that is the great trick in life. If you know what you're supposed to do, go to your calendar and make an appointment with yourself to do it. It's funny how simplistic that sounds, but there is research out there that suggests if you say, I'm going to do it, and then you go to the trouble of saying, this is when and where I'm going to do it and put it on your calendar, you're about three times more likely to do it. Most so people use their calendar for meetings with other people. Wealthy people, in my opinion, use their calendar for appointments with themselves first. So with that 411 list, is that a monthly list that you kind of compile and you just work on throughout the week and revise? No, it's, it's, it's very different from my to-do list. I keep my to-do list off of this document. This is my 20%, my one thing list. So it starts at the top. If you just took a piece of paper and took three lines and divided it up, at the top, you'd say my annual goals. Like for me, one of my number one measures for investing, like for my wealth, is I'm tracking my net worth. And I have a goal. I know where I started the year and I know where I want to end the year, right? And then based on that goal, I ask, what are the activities that I need to accomplish this month to be on track for that goal? And then each week I say, based on my monthly goals, what do I have to do this week to be on track for that? Because you're working backwards from your clear priority, there's not a whole lot of options. 
Um, here's a dad trick for you. Do you have kids yet? No, no. Okay. When you have little kids, you're going to go to a restaurant and they hand out the kitty menus, right? Invariably, there's a maze on that. So this is just a fun little party trick. You can, you know, you, when you have your nephews or nieces right next time, you can show them this. If you work the maze forwards, that's where all the branches are. If you start in the center and work your way out, there's almost no wrong turns. And I think of that as a metaphor for, you know, we say begin with the end in mind. That's what it looks like. What do I want to accomplish? I'm going to work backwards. Because when you look back in your life, you see the milestones of how you got there. But if you look forward, you see all the options. So the trick is, let's go out to the end of the year or the end of the month and work backwards from what we want to have happen. And usually the big milestones are very clear to us. Well, I guess I, guess I have to do this and this. Right. Well, then focus all your energy on those few things. And I have another list. It's actually on the back of this. So I, I clearly know. 80%, 20%. And I know that's paper. I know a lot of people who do this digitally, I'm totally cool. But I learned it old school and I've just kept that habit. But I have my priority list and I start with that. And when I have free time, I knock out the 80%. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It feels very systematic and it's on purpose. It's, it's a way to keep you on track because otherwise you're always running off and doing different stuff. Right, right. And then you go, you go and make sure you make an appointment like on the weekend or in your workshop time to go yep. and get that done. So I just now have the habit every morning I look at that list and usually on a Friday or a Sunday, I'm planning my week or my month, depending on what time of the year it is. And at the end of the year, my wife and I get together, we have a whole retreat. We actually teach a class on it. We do an overnight retreat where we set five-year goals. And based on those, what are we going to accomplish this year? So I think if you're going to accomplish big things, you need a really solid framework for how you're going to employ your time. And that's the one that I've learned from Gary. And that's kind of the one we talk about in the book. We call it goal setting to the now. These guys, they're, they're working a day job and, you know, they're also finding deals on the side and, um, you know, they may not be making a podcast or a website, but they're busy folks. Yeah. Uh, is work-life balance possible? What's the, what's your take on that? So I think the way most people view it, it's kind of a lie that's been perpetrated on us. I think when you ask someone, do you have work-life balance? What goes through their head is this idea that they've got everything arranged so perfectly, you know, that they just, ah, my life is good right now. And the reality is that balance is an activity. It's a verb. It's not a state of being. And so if you're really trying to accomplish big things, especially at work, you're going to focus on the one thing and ignore everything else. You're going to feel out of balance and that's normal. So what we kind of talk about in the book is something called counterbalancing. So you bring awareness to that every week and you don't neglect the things that matter most. So I see people really good at focusing on their one thing at their job, but they'll do that to the detriment of their marriage, their health, their spiritual life, and their personal life. And over time, those things can add up to burnout or a heart attack or a divorce, right? So we preach those things in your life need to be counterbalanced on a regular basis. So awareness, again, it all comes back to awareness. Hey, I just worked, you know, a 70 hour week. Maybe I need to take a couple of days off and recharge the batteries, right? It's just like when you work out, you have to rest to actually build strength, right? Those two have to work together. 
And in the long haul, remember the domino is a long run. Doesn't, it's, you're not going to become a multimillionaire this year, right? If you do, you're just lucky. It's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. So you need to be managing these things. And we just call it counterbalancing. So yeah. the big mistakes are people neglect stuff like their health and their personal life, thinking that they're doing it so that they can have them later, but they may not be waiting on you in 10 years. So you need to be balancing them actively as you go. All right. The, the metaphor you guys use in the book that really worked with me was the, the ballerina. You know, when they do that move where they're up on their tippy toes or the, I don't know, the front of their toes and they're kind of floating, looking like they're floating there. I want to say plie. I have no idea. What yeah. it's <laughs> Whatever they're doing. It looks like it's magic, right? From far yeah. away. But when you look up close, their, their lower body's going forward and their upper body's yeah. going back or something like that. It's not bad. It's kind of like if, if, if you're sitting at home watching this, I do this when I give keynotes and I'm talking about this and I just say, all right, everybody stand up. And I want you to stand on one foot and you see everybody out there and they're, you know, I'll just ask, great. Are you balanced or are you balancing? And invariably everybody will chuckle and go, we're balancing. That's what balance looks like. It's an activity. You have to do it actively. If you just freeze, even a ballerina is going to topple over. Right. So it's an active state. Right. So a lot of the, like these guys though, you know, you'll buy a property. It'll take you like, two or three months of every night doing something, sending lenders this, and it's kind of a season. Mm -hmm. um, do you see it as seasons or is it more of like a weekly, monthly check-in on, hey, what am I neglecting here? What part of the wheel is not up to par with everything else? Um, I described it earlier. I do a big check-in um, before the year starts on a really big scale. And we look at our investment portfolio. We ask if we need to refinance things. Do we need to acquire more properties this year? Do we need to sell properties, right? And then we set our annual goals. And every week I'm checking in on my expectations in the big areas. And hopefully it's a very short list. It's not a lot of things that matter. So on a grand scale, that's how I do it. But if you're thinking about the cycle of buying an investment property, it's a lot like your down payment, right? You put a down payment on your investment property. And it's a small percentage of the value of that property. That's how we get leverage. That's how we get those high rates of return, right? So today, is it about 25% down payment? Would that be an accurate statement on most investment properties? Yeah, right? If you're going to get traditional financing. So you're leveraging 75% of the value. I think that in terms of your time and effort, it might be like a 5% deposit. It feels like a lot, right? You have to do all the work to find it. You have to do all the work to get your financing together. Then you have to inspect it. And then you have to close on it. And then for me, if you're renting it, we usually have a period of a few weeks of intense, we call it make ready. You know, let's get those carpets out. Let's get some new paint on the walls. And there's a little bit more expense in money and time. We have single family, mostly single family investment properties. I don't know what your market's like, but in our market, maybe two days a year, we have to check in on them actively, right? They come up, not even every year. We have one tenant that's been in one of our properties for seven years. So some of them, it's just, they call you and they need some maintenance and that's just a phone call, right? And you have to arrange something. I don't personally go fix my properties anymore. I did in the very beginning if I could, but now I don't do that anymore. But now we manage them very lightly. So you think about how much money is working for you 
the other 360 days of the year and you had to invest parts of a few of them to keep that machine going, I think of that as like a down payment. And you have right. to every now and then do it. It's very leveraged in terms of your time, in my opinion. It just feels intense on the front end. Right. And, and one thing I, I usually recommend, like my coaching clients, is you know when you go out and get that property and you hit that milestone, maybe take like 10% of that cash flow and go and just spend it on dinner or something like that. or, or nice <laughs> Reward day. yourself. Right, right. Because this is the problem, right? Like, there's this concept of, you know, entrepreneurs or investors, you need to put your face mask on first, right? Like replace your W-2 income with your passive investments, whether that's a quarter of it, half of it, or all of it. It, it takes a while to get up to that point. And you, 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 like we said, you got to kind of be selfish about it, right? You got to you know, limit associations, not do things that aren't aligned with your, your domino at the time. And you've got to, you got to rush and, put very much focus and intensity into this goal. But the question that I, I'm struggling is at what point do you start to take sort of profits off the table? Not really money profits, but time. Okay. This, this came up last night. We had, um, we have a team of about 30 people on our real estate team. And we, um, our goal is to create 10 millionaires from the people who are in business with us. We've already made two. We got another one approaching the door, but we meet regularly and talk about wealth building. And this came up, like at what point in the journey do you start, instead of acting like the frugal investor, start enjoying some of the spoils of war, you know? And my answer to that is whenever you're on track for the goals that you set yourself, anything that's above that, why wouldn't you enjoy it? Now, early on, I was being really aggressive. And if we had extra money, we always invested it, right? And over time, but if you're not hitting your goal, then it's premature. And so that's the way I look at it. Like we have a net worth goal that we have set for the end of this year. And if we have invested money and are on track for that goal and our cash flow goals are on track and we have excess income, you know, we generally say one of two things. We, we ask what assets can we buy? What debt can we pay down? And you know, maybe we'll treat ourselves, but we've that frugality. I have a, lucky we have two income streams for gosh for probably 14 years now we've been living on one income stream and the other income stream is purely for investing but we're now ahead of our goals a little bit and we cheat a little like we're renovating our house right now which is a horrible investment decision because we're living in it Wait, what's that again renovating your house is a bad investment you know <laughs> your personal home right if you're going to be a true net worth millionaire you you can't count that value of that so if you're going to be a high net worth individual and certified, you know, investor, you don't normally count that investment. Right. That's why the so, SEC doesn't allow you to count it to be an accredited investor. There you go. So it's in our net worth sheet and it is an investment in the way we try to treat it. But the reality is we look at how much money it's taking us to renovate our 1954 home in Austin, Texas. We could have bought three investment properties more, Right. But we're also at a place where, okay, our kids are about to be in high school. We want to actually have, this is the last five years or so they're going to be in the house with us. We're going to maximize that time. And we're taking some of the money off the table. And I think it's appropriate because we're still on goal. And Gary has also taught me, you never use debt for luxury items. So let that sink in. 
most, a lot of people will jump out and they'll go buy a Mercedes, but they won't pay cash for it, right? You definitely need transportation, but that could be a bus, that could be a Toyota, or that could be, you know, a Tesla. Those are all viable transportation. So the necessity and then everything above that can be luxury. So we pay cash for those things. So we're paying cash for this renovation. So that's real opportunity cost lost. But we're also at a place where, you know what? We've been doing this for a long time. In the beginning, we lived on 60% of our income and invested the rest. So we understand how to be frugal, but it's also, if we're on track, we're going to take some money off the table and actually enjoy it. It's just, when is that appropriate? I don't think it's appropriate if you're not on track and you're not behaving like an investor should. Like I said, if you're buying a mansion and using debt to do it, you're, you're playing with some money that you may not have. I, I don't love that. Right, right. I think, I think a lot of my listeners, they're, they're kind of a weird folk where they get pleasure off saving money. and It's perverse, man. Right, we're, it's we're totally that way. Gary Keller tells a story when he was building his wealth in the beginning. His simple budgeting was they set their goals for investing. They had an investment account. And every time they got paid, a certain percentage of their income went into the investment account. Right? It's kind of like a 401k. He just got removed from his checks. He didn't see it. It went there for the next investment. They had their budget account and that grew as they grew in wealth, right? And that money went into account and his wife was in charge of that. Let's pay the household bills. Let's do that. And they were so trained. He would look at their budget account and he's, she would be saving half of what they were supposed to be living on. And he's like, honey, 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 you don't have to do that anymore. Like as long as everything that we needed is in the investment account, everything here is just for fun. So if you don't want to spend it on yourself, let's give it to charity. But it's like those investor habits die hard. Um, so, you know, like I said, in my mind, if I'm on goal and I'm playing by all the rules, no, you know, debt, you know, I'm, I'm paying off my credit cards, no luxury items except I pay cash for them, and our investment targets are on set, then my budget account, if it's overflowing a little bit, all right, I'll go shopping. I'm not a – look at what I'm wearing, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I – I've got a sports watch on. I, I don't, those habits haven't really died. I don't own a Rolex. I don't do those things. I've got a Toyota Highlander, right? But I will splurge. We bought a ranch. That was, that was my expression, right? Of we have more than we need. This is something that we would like to see in our life. Is it a great investment? It's real estate. It'll appreciate, but it won't appreciate. And it doesn't derive income. So you have to make those decisions based on where you are in the journey. Right, right. I, I think the thing that people struggle with, and you know, most guys I'll get on the call with, they've got a, f a couple hundred thousand dollars at least, and they're going to buy their first rental property. And I usually paint the big picture for them. You know, you're going to buy this rental property this year, maybe one, two years. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, you know, probably be financially free in about three to eight years, most likely. How do you define financially free? Uh, paying off or uh, replacing their W-2 income. Okay. Or at least their living expenses. So they'll, they'll be at that point of abundance very quickly. And they're kind of like, wow, you know, but I think they go home and they get lost in this, uh, this mess. And they, they kind of like, well, Lane said I'll get there in seven, but let me try and get there in, you know, six or five, you know, this is a couple of years later. And it's something that I should kind of struggle with too. Well, 
as long as they're not being aggressive such that they're violating their criteria, if they're saving more than they need to, God bless them, right? I mean, but go to the movies, guys. I mean, you can go (laughs) eat out every now and then. I'm okay with that. But if you're on track, but I get it. I'm impatient by nature too. Um, It took us, because of the nature of investing where we are, we don't have an income tax. So our property taxes are very high and cash flow takes longer here, right? Um, unless you're really deep in the multifamily game. And we made the decision to keep most of our investments here. So it took us a short period of time, relatively less than seven years to hit our first net worth, big net worth goal. It took us close to 10 years to hit our income goals. So we could have done it faster if we'd been willing to do things that maybe other people are like, we now have a real estate team in St. Louis. And, you know, like there's a portfolio $3 million portfolio of homes is a 13.7% cap. And I looked at Wendy and I was like, wow, if we had been thinking like that early on, how much cash flow could we have accumulated more quickly if we'd been willing to invest in places that have higher rates of cash flow? And we would have had to use a property manager, but I was too much of a scaredy cat. That's the truth. So I think the journey is your own. Um, and I'm never going to punish someone for saving too much especially when you see how other people spend their money. Right, but, right. But definitely go out to eat every now and then, guys. It's okay. Yeah. Have a have a soft drink, too. I didn't know soft drink. You could order soft drinks at restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> I brown bag it still most days. I mean, it's weird. Some of those habits don't go away. You know, you understand the great thing about the investor journey is you start looking at things for value. Is this really a value? I don't mind paying for something that's expensive if I feel like it's real value. Like I like Patagonia. I'm an outdoors guy. Those, you buy a Patagonia jacket, you don't need another one. If you choose to buy another one, that's a choice. But in, unless you destroy it, which is hard to do, like that's a value. It is expensive, but you also are going to get tremendous value from those things. Any thoughts on um, marriage, family, and raising kids under this philosophy? Um, lots. Um, one thing I would say, we were teaching a class in Anaheim, me and my partner, Jeff Woods, who does our one thing podcast. And we were teaching, um, how billionaires set goals. And it was kind of like our big, you know, how do you set distant goals? Five year, one year, like our whole program for how you do this. And so how my wife and I've been living for many years. And we were talking about this idea of setting goals with your partner. And I remember Jeff, they had probably 800 people in the room. He said, how many people here, raise your hand if you set goals. And everybody raised their hands, right? They're at the seminar, right? Of course they do. And then he goes, now keep them up if you actively involve your significant other in creating those plans. And almost every hand in the building went down. And I remember that was a real moment. So if you are married to someone and you're the investor, um, a lot of people, because we know not everybody gets, like I, I lucked out. My wife chose to be an investor too. She was actively on the journey with me. But I know lots of people where they're the investor and they have someone over here who likes to do a lot of shopping and doesn't really want to talk about it. If you don't involve them in the journey, if you're not planning with them, it's going to be very hard to stay aligned. So kind of like we talk about counterbalancing, being married, being a husband, being a father is an activity that you have to be on all the time and it's not something you get to take vacations from and involving them in the process is super important. So my wife and I do a goal setting retreat every year. 
We check in with our goals every month. Every afternoon we walk the dogs and we talk about this stuff. So we've made it to where it's a conversation we can have. It was not easy in the beginning, but it has paid off tenfold. As for raising kids, I've got teenagers. So all bets are off on how they turn off, right? Because right now they have no mind of their own. They're 13 and 12. But I will say this, um, they both understand entrepreneurialism because they've seen it every day. And I remember there were times when we were renovating properties and we literally had our kids, right? We would kind of baby-proof a room, not baby, right? But they'd be in the corner playing with matchbox cars and there's nails everywhere. And we're constantly checking in. And I remember Wendy going, are we bad that instead of being at a playground, they're at a rental property? And I predicted, and this is one of the few things I got right, I just said, I think what we're doing is showing them what it looks like to build wealth. They don't know it right now. And if you ask my kids, they think it's totally normal that we own a bunch of houses, even though you and I both know that's very unique. So I'm hoping that we're at least role modeling how to communicate about money, how to get on the same page and build it as a family, and also hopefully some values around money over time. But I, I could go on and on, but a lot of it comes down to what are you communicating? Are you getting alignment? Are you finding ways that both halves of the marriage can find a win in what you're doing? Right. That's very important because I can tell you when your spouse is not aligned, it can be like running with a parachute open. It's not fun and it's hard. Right. Maybe walk us through that, that daily uh, dog walking talk. How does that usually go? It's not so, like... We got a our four, let's talk about our four goals for the year. Start from the high end. Well, we do the goal setting that. retreat, right? And so kind of more or less structured. I, you know, if I showed you, again, this is all paper, but it's electronic. I've got my five-year family goals here. And I check in on these pretty regularly. Like, how are we doing? Did we say we were going to do something and it really doesn't matter? Like, I, I cross stuff off all the time. And we add things. But my wife is also a business person. She uses a 411. One of the ways that we've found ways to regularly stay in communication, we got a dog. We didn't know this was going to happen. But now at the end of the day, we'll be texting each other, what's your ETA? And if daylight and weather, like today, it's a horrible rainstorm. But if weather allows, like one of our favorite things to do is there's a green belt that we can take our dog for a walk in and we'll either go with the kids or just each other and we'll talk about our work day. And it's kind of nice because we're not in the house. Like I'm not, you know, she's not prepping for dinner and I'm not doing laundry. So we get to just be in nature and kind of have a relaxed, how to go today. And we stay pretty in tune with each other's businesses that way, just because we've found a regular window to have conversations. The other side of it, flip side of the coin, three days a week, we get up at five in the morning and we work out together with the trainer. And that's been huge. We've been doing that for eight years. So sometimes before the day's going, we're in there and we're doing burpees and hating life. And, but we're talking about what do you have going on today? Oh, I'm interviewing some talent or, Hey, I'm going to go look at this property. Do you want to meet me? And it's just, it's, it's so easy when you've got a family to be so busy and so consumed with baseball practice and everything else that you forget to connect with the reason that you had the kids in the first place. Right. And so I think my first role is as a husband and my second role is as a father. And I try to keep those priorities aligned because I want to role model a healthy marriage too. 
that doesn't, by the way, pass the burning building test. If the building's on fire, my wife knows I'm going for the kids. And so she, she, she would she. But on a daily basis where lives are not at stake, I'm making sure that our investment, right, as best as I can, and we fight like everybody else, right? We're human. But we try to make sure that we are doing the right things together so that we can then be better parents for the kids. That may sound counterintuitive, but it makes sense to me. And it's working. No, no, that that counterintuitive um, point is something I've been hearing a lot from very successful people. Most times the counterintuitive thing is probably the things that you should probably be doing. You should at least consider it, right? Yeah. Appreciate you coming on, Jay. No, uh, nice thanks. I can, I can tell you've read the books. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing them. And uh, thank you for helping people build wealth. What a cool, I mean, you're building yours, but you're also coaching people and helping people. That must be very rewarding. How awesome. Yeah, I don't have kids. So the reason I made this podcast is, you know, maybe they can listen to it one day. No, that's cool. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.